I'm Lillian Vasquez with Lifestyles on KVCR. Thanks for listening. As we continue to honor Black History Month, I'll speak with award-winning filmmaker Lawrence Hott. His list of films is extensive. He's also a co-founding partner of Florentine Films with Ken Burns, among others. His newest film is The Niagara Movement, The Early Battle for Civil Rights, which can be seen on KVCR-TV and found on the KVCR-TV website for easy viewing. The film explores black intellectual society at the turn of the century, a class often overlooked, and examines the heated debate among the black elite on how to best uplift each other and achieve equality. Lawrence talks about the three men who are the focus of the film, Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, and William Monroe Trotter. He also emphasizes the importance of producing this film in today's world. The boys in Trotter wanted to confront racial injustice head on, but the most powerful African-American in the country preached accommodation, not confrontation. Booker T. Washington becomes black America's president. From about 1895 or so, he is it. He's the, the strong man, he's the head man, he's the boss. He tells white people, we don't need to be equal to you socially. The Niagara Movement is the notion that we are breaking away from Booker T. Washington's politics. You cannot talk about the struggle for civil rights in American history without acknowledging the Niagara Movement. Here's my conversation with Lawrence Hott. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you have a new film that can be seen on PBS across the nation. The name of the film is The Niagara Movement, The Early Battle for Civil Rights. And I want to talk about that. But first, let's talk about the three men that the film is centered around. That would be Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, and William Monroe Trotter. So I'd like to begin with Booker T. Washington, who I remember as a young girl reading in my books. The other two, I don't remember ever reading about them, but Booker T. Washington must have come up a lot, and therefore I remember the name, obviously. And he was very educated. He was part of the Tuskegee Institute, which you'll, you can talk about. He was about having blacks learn a trade, more so than anything. He, I guess he thought that they could learn a trade and move themselves up in the community. Tell me about Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington is a complicated character. There are some people today who absolutely despise him and others who say he was the best thing that ever happened to African-Americans. He was born a slave and he was free when he was about nine years old, but he lived in abject poverty. But he was a very smart kid. And eventually he gets tapped to be the new and first director of the Tuskegee School, which was a school for African-Americans in Alabama. And the reason he got tapped to do that was part of a political compromise, because at that time, African-Americans had to vote in Alabama, and the people in charge wanted to keep their vote. Uh, They wanted to get the Democratic vote. And uh, so they said, oh, it would be a good idea if we had a black man run a black institution. Mm. But he was able to get support from white liberals, particularly Andrew Carnegie, Uh, And what would now be many, many millions of dollars support for himself and support for the school. Mm. And he created what others derisively called the Tuskegee machine. And they also negative terms called him the wizard of Tuskegee Mm. because he was able to bring in so much money. 
but that money gave him power. Mm. And that's where the resentment came. And later on, as we talk about in the film, that power was exercised by controlling the black press in his battle. And it was really a, a, a fight, in fact, sometimes a physical fight mm. uh, with the supporters of W.E.B. Du Bois and another character in the film, uh, William Monroe Trotter, who was also not very well known, but was extremely famous back in the 1890s and early 1900s. Tell me about W.E.B. Du Bois. I'd love to know what the W.E.B. stand for. He was a graduate from Harvard. He was a civil rights activist. He was from Boston or the Massachusetts area. He lived to the age of 95, fighting all the way. And he tried to work with Booker T. Washington, but he was challenged by Washington's way of thinking. So tell me who W.E.B. Du Bois was. W.E.B. Du Bois was actually born not too far from where I am now. I'm in western Massachusetts and he was born in Great Barrington, which is uh, in the Berkshires. You've probably heard of, of the Berkshires, usually thought of as a sort of a, a Tony vacation area for, for New Yorkers. Um, <laughs> he was the smartest kid in this class. It was a small class, but he ends up at Harvard after uh, having gone to one of the historically black universities, and he gets his graduate degree there at the same time. This is in the uh, 1870s, 80s, with William Monroe Trotter, who was a wealthy son of a businessman. And one of the, you know, there were not that many African-American men going to Harvard at that time. And here are these two guys who were the smartest guys in their class. And that's where they, that's where they meet. But W.E.B. Du Bois, he goes on to have a, a career that goes all, all the way up to the night before the March on Washington in 1963. He is known for a lot more than the Niagara Movement. And in a lot of biographies of Du Bois, the Niagara Movement is not such a big deal. But now people are starting to look at it and say, this was a turning point, an inflection point. Uh, and that's what the film is about. Is what, what was happening? What was this battle about? A battle between W.B. Du Bois, who was um, a sociologist. And he was an historian and extremely respected man, a true intellectual, spoke many languages, lived in Germany for a while. And he got into this big fight with Booker T. Washington over the direction of the civil rights movement. Now, let's get to know who William Monroe Trotter was. He was also, as you indicated, a Harvard graduate. He was a critic of Booker T. Washington as well. He founded the Guardian newspaper, which at that time became kind of the heartbeat of the conscience of black America. He challenged Booker T. in the newspaper and then Ultimately, Trotter committed suicide at the age of 62. Tell me who William Monroe Trotter was. Well, he was a real firebrand. And when he founded The Guardian in 1902, he founded it in opposition to the things that were being written or paid to be written by uh, Booker T. Washington. There were about 300 uh, black papers in the United States and in all the major cities, wherever there was a black community. And Booker T. Washington controlled them. And he had them do his, his bidding. And Monroe Trotter, who was his activist in Boston, didn't like it. And he started The Guardian to say, wait a second, I don't believe in your philosophy. And this is the thing we really need to talk about. What was, what was so wrong with Booker T. Washington's philosophy? Right. Uh, and, and the turning point in, in the film is this speech that Booker T. Washington is asked to give in Atlanta at the exhibition. Uh, and it's kind of odd. You know, here's in Atlanta. Why is this black man being asked to give this speech? It's so unusual. You know, you didn't really see this happen very much in the South. And he gets up on this platform 
and he makes a speech, which is dubbed later the Atlantic Compromise. And he says that black people should keep their heads down, should get an education in the trades, plumbing, carpentry, etc., and take things very slowly, not threaten white power, so that they can get an education and get ahead economically, and slowly civil rights will come to them. The masses of us are to live by the production of our hands. We shall prosper as we learn to dignify and glorify common labor. It is at the bottom of life we should begin, and not the top. Booker T. Washington. Originally, W.E. Du Bois agrees with him and writes in favor of this. But then what's happening in the background, I say background, but the background to the story, but right. it's very much in the foreground of people's lives, is lynchings and mm. other depredations that are happening because of Jim Crow. But the number of lynchings you know, rises in the aggregate to the thousands. And they're horrors. They are true horrors. Mm. Uh, they're the kind of things that people in Europe are looking at saying, in the United States, they're burning people at the stake, essentially. Mm. You know, people are being decapitated when, when they're hanged. I mean, this is when W.E. Boys witnesses the, the results of one of these uh, lynchings, which is that the knuckles of a man named Sam Hosa displayed in a grocery store window. Yeah. He almost goes nuts. He loses it, basically, in common, common parlance. And he says, this, this cannot stand. We cannot have a compromised position. We have to take a strong stand. And he joins together with William Monroe Trotter, and they decide to form a national movement. Uh, they're not exactly sure what they're going to call it, but why is it called the Niagara Movement? Let me reintroduce my guest is filmmaker Lawrence Hott, and we're talking about his film that can be seen on PBS stations across the nation, including here in our region on KVCR PBS. The film is The Niagara Movement, The Early Battle for Civil Rights. Okay, so this is where you are. In 1905, 29 black men travel to Niagara Falls for a conference. They wanted to leave Booker T. Washington's way of thinking and leading encounter with something new. And according to the film, Du Bois says that Booker T. Washington wants three things. And this is just, I I was just blown away with this. Give up on obtaining political power, give up on insistence of civil rights, and give up on the idea of higher education. Go ahead and share your thoughts there. Well, you said that they go to Niagara Falls. Now, that might sound like a quibble here because they actually go to Buffalo. Okay. But this is really important. They end up at a hotel in Canada on the other side of the on the other side of the river in Fort Erie because it's the cheapest lodging they can find. Okay. And they had twenty nine intellectuals and businessmen lawyers together and they're going to Buffalo because Buffalo has the best rates and because there's a very receptive small but receptive black community there that knew W. E. B. Du Bois because he had responded to these uh, very stereotypical and racist images that were at an exhibition, the Pan American Exhibition in 91 in Buffalo. And he responded with his own display that showed um, how sophisticated, uh, how well-educated, how well-dressed African-Americans were in actuality. So they knew, they knew W.E.D. boys, and, they, and uh, he knew them, and he was invited back, and he decided that Buffalo was the place to do it. And because Buffalo is only 20 miles from Niagara Falls, it's considered the Niagara Falls region, the Niagara region. 
I, by just a coincidence, well, not so much coincidence, because I worked a lot with the Buffalo PBS station. I've done several films on, on Niagara Falls itself. Mm. And the films, and, you know, there's just a bunch of water falling over a cliff. That's, that's not a film. <laughs> it's why is Niagara Falls important? Because it was originally a wilderness symbol. It's the source of power. There's giant electric stations. It's, it's where uh, Thomas Edison fought this battle with Tessa over alternating power versus the direct current. And uh, it's just been a symbol of power for a very long time. And that in 1905, when they start the Niagara Movement, they didn't call it the Niagara Movement, but they seized on the name because it is a great torrent of power, a great current of power. Right. It was a symbol mm. for them of what we're going to be. We're going to rise up as a movement against this way of thinking of Booker T. Washington's, that we should be subservient, that we shouldn't make waves, mm. that we shouldn't get a real education. So they said, what are we going to do? We're going to form a national movement. Now, there were other African-American organizations at the time, most notably a 15,000-person strong women's movement, the National Association of Colored Women. Mm. And curiously, Monroe Trotter, who joined with with W.B. Du Bois to form the Niagara Movement, didn't want women involved. I love the second year when women were invited. I couldn't believe that you would not have women at this when they were strong and had a voice and a lot of times a backbone in a house, right? Absolutely. And, of course, they realized the folly of this. <laughs> when women were banging on the door saying, you know, how can you not bring us in? And there's a woman in, in the film, a scholar, who, who says, you could see, see the look on her face. Yeah. And she said, how could they, they exclude women when, when women are the backbone of the movement and the, <laughs> the backbone of the church? It's just, a, it's just absurd. And then what happens in, with the Niagara movement is very shortly after being founded, a woman from uh, Washington, D.C., a school teacher named Barbara Pope, comes to them and says, will you take my case? her legal case. And this is an early Rosa Parks case. Right. Uh, I think people who study civil rights sort of know Rosa Parks was not the first. Uh, even Plessy versus Ferguson, Plessy was doing the same thing. Right. You know, people refusing to go to the back of the train, back mm -hmm. of the bus. Right. You know, in various times in history. And Barbara Pope, was, this is, she was not a setup. Some of these things were set up, like a Plessy was arranged as a test case. Oh. Uh, Rosa Parks knew what she was doing. Barbara Pope got on a train to go to Virginia, to go to a beach on vacation, and said, I'm not going to go to the back of the train, which she was told. It was, no, it was not organized. It was just spontaneous. And they fined her, and she protested, and she asked the Niagara Movement people to take her case. And they said, yes, this is what we should do. We should bring lawsuits. Now, that sounds like maybe that's the most, not the most exciting thing in, in the world, but if you look at the trajectory of the lawsuit that Barbara Pope brought and what the Niagara Movement did with it, it leads directly to Brown versus Board of Education. Mm. Right? And it also leads directly to the founding of the NAACP. Right. And that's right. what I was going to say, the significance of the Niagara movement and what ultimately lead to the NAACP. Well, the Niagara movement didn't last much longer or it went broke or maybe it was because of the, the Barbara Pope case. But All of it. All okay. Of true. <laughs> but it ultimately um, yeah. led to the NAACP. Yes, it did, and there's a little irony there because the NAACP only had one black board member when they were founded, and that was W.E.B. Du Bois mm. as the secretary. And they had learned from the mistakes of the Niagara Movement, which excluded all white people as well as originally women. 
And that was a big mistake on their part because they didn't have the financial support. That's one of the reasons that Booker T. Washington could oppose them so well, because he had the money. I mean, there's images in the film of Booker T. Washington at Carnegie Hall on the stage with Andrew Carnegie and uh, Mark Twain. You know, he's got the white support. Right. Um, and so the liberals learned. They said, "Okay, well, we need to bring in the people, you know, other other people in the uh, in the white establishment who had been supporting civil rights. We need to get those people on our board to have the power to make the change that we need." Right. right? But you know, we we were cautioned when we were making this film was not to turn Booker T. Washington into a villain. And you didn't. Um, but you you did make people think like and, and just as you opened up in the beginning of this interview, some people think one way of Booker T, other people think another way of Booker T. And it's really for the viewer watching the film to make their decisions of what he was. Did he have some did he bring some good about? Yes. Did he stifle the black person? Possibly. So there are definitely two sides to Booker T. Washington. Niagara Movement Declaration of Principles. We refuse to allow the impression that the Negro American ascends to inferiority, is submissive under oppression, and apologetic before insults. Our voice of protest must never cease so long as America is unjust. I want to ask you, Lawrence, why was this important to you to produce and why now? Oh, wow, the why now? <laughs> it's what's going on in the country. I, I think the this film was in development for 15 years. And the oh. producer, the executive producer, the person who, whose idea it was, his name is Don Boswell, African-American uh, director of the station, the CEO of the Buffalo PBS station. Oh. And it was his pet project. He said, I really want this this film to be made. And he couldn't get any funding for years and years. He said, well, this is right in you know, Niagara it's uh, Niagara Falls is in our backyard. We're in Western New York, where this was founded. You know, the, the ideal film for us to do, a local film with a national impact. Couldn't get any money. And then what happens? George Floyd. Mm. And all the other things around that, all the other killings by the police of black men. And all of a sudden, there's a lot of interest in this subject. And one of the local foundations came through with sizable money. And this is the way it works in, in fundraising. When one major funder comes in, all the other funders come in as well. Others will follow, and then, yeah. Right, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting came in, and we had all the funding. Um, and I've been working with the station for 20 years. Uh, this is my fifth film with them. And they said, we know you, we trust you, you've worked with a lot of other on a lot of other subjects that you are not a member of, right? For example, you know, I've done uh, several films on Native Americans. I've done films on the, uh, deaf sign language yes. uh, and identity. Uh, we know that you know how to work with advisors and uh, people from a group that you're not part of. Um, so I decided that this was uh, an excellent, exciting project. Um, and as a longtime filmmaker, you're usually raising all my own money. It's, it's Certainly, uh, very attractive when somebody comes to you and says, "Here's all the funding in hand. Go make the film. We trust you. Go make the film. Yeah. And know that you'll do it right." And it was, uh, it wasn't like it was an easy project. It wasn't a slam dunk. I know that whenever you have, if you don't mind talking a little bit about the like the intricacies of filmmaking, please do. That a single biography is the easiest film you can make, if especially it's about somebody who had an interesting life lived in a period 
when there was cinematography and photography and made some major changes to society. That's the easiest. But it gets very complicated when you take three biographies yes. and you put them together. Yes. Right? How do you weave biographies together? Mm-hmm. I've done a film where you had uh, what would be like a relay race where you do a biography, somebody dies and hands off the issue to somebody else, and they do for a while, and then they die and they hand it off. Okay, that's fine. That's sequential. But what about when you have three people live at the same time, and they all have different points of view, and they're all doing different things? So that was a big challenge. You know, how do you, how do you tell that story? Um, at the time we started the film, we were concerned that maybe there wouldn't be enough images. We were pleasantly surprised to find that there were quite a few, more than the lynching images, unfortunately. There were so many lynchings that there's a lot of images. You know, people, I think some people are aware that of the postcards that were made of lynching, but there are lots of other horrifying photographs. But right from the get-go, we knew we needed to do something more interesting with the images than to just pan over them. So I've been working for many, many years with a very talented graphic designer, artist, animator. Um, I'm rolling those all into one. That's what he does, named Amit Sethi, um, who actually has done lots of work with NAACP. Um, so was very familiar with this material. And the images really move in this, in this show. Uh, so it's a it's very lively film. I also hired a wonderful African American composer out of Hollywood named Robert Toteras, who I'll tell you he leapt at the chance to work on a project like this, and yeah. he did a did a, a marvelous job. I had a wonderful cinematographer um, named Greg Brutus, another a young African American man who was extremely talented. I've been working with Henry Louis Gates on his series. Mm. Um, he he did a a great job. Um, had a great crew, you know, associate producer, Sharon Williams, woman from Trinidad, Tobago, actually, who um, uh, knew her way around the archives and, and producing. So I had a, a really good team. Uh, and then the people in the film, uh, who out of 19 interviews, 16 are African-American, who are the top historians in the field. And I'm very lucky to live where I do for this film. I live in Western Massachusetts, which is where not only where W.E.B. Du Bois was born, which is where, but is where the W.E.B. Du Bois Center is. Um, and in fact, I was on the board of directors with, the, mm. with our state humanities council with the woman who was the head of the, the center, the Du Bois Center. So even when I was hired for this film, they hired me because I worked with the Buffalo Station for, for so long, but it turns out I was the right person because I'm right in the middle of this. I'm near Boston. I'm near where the Du Bois was born. I know the people who run the Du Bois Center. It just seemed to be a, 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 good fit. a very good match, a yeah. yeah, good fit. And your historians were both black and white telling the story, which was nice. Yes. Yes. In fact, uh, one of the historians in the film, somebody I worked with God, 35 years ago, uh, biographies of Aldo Leopold and John Muir. Um, and I, I, I hadn't been in touch with him for a while. I thought he had passed away. And it turned <laughs> out that his first book on William Monroe Trotter had inspired another woman in the film who wrote the most modern biography of William Monroe Trotter. As a little girl, she read the book and decided she'd become a historian. So I had both of them in the film, wow. uh, which, which was a real treat. I think this film is, it's, any of the lynchings are always horrible and the suicides that are that are there. But I think this is a good learning experience for in the classroom, maybe in high school. Well, there are trigger warnings on the film. And right. PBS rightly asked us to put those on the film. 
But yes, this is. I think this is a kind of history that people are not often getting. It's really very difficult to do a big survey of history and, and have any memories of it. You know, you open up a textbook and you read, you know, 300 pages, uh, you know, about the history of the Civil War or the civil rights history. It's hard to remember the details. This is a film about a small amount of time from 1895 to. To 1910, but really from 1905 to 1990 is the heart of the film. And, you know, it's it's something that you can hold on to and relate to and remember. Three interesting, powerful mm-hmm. characters, uh, some sub-characters that they relate to, and a very clear storyline. So it's a, you know, and I mentioned earlier that biography is the easiest film to kind of film to do, but when you mix biography with a really good subject that, that has a beginning, a middle, and end, uh, that makes for powerful material. And this is that, a beginning, a middle, and an end. We learn about three men rather than just one, and we kind of hear different sides of it. So, Lawrence, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I very much enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for doing this. One of the greatest legacies of the Niagara Movement is the black community coming together and standing up on that principle of I know my rights and I have the courage to defend them. The Niagara Movement is inspiring because here you had people in a most difficult, challenging, threatening, dangerous, vulnerable climate saying, I'm gonna try a different way. And that's what we need today. People who are willing and able to take the risk to life and liberty to point us in a new direction that can give us hope and win support to make a new world. For more information about Lawrence Hott and the film The Niagara Movement, The Early Battle for Civil Rights, visit us at kvcrnews.org lifestyles and click on today's show. That's our show for this week. To hear any of our past shows, visit our archives at kvcrnews.org slash lifestyles or listen to Lifestyles on the KVCR app. You can also listen to Lifestyles on your favorite streaming service. Search for Lifestyles with Lillian Vasquez and take the show on the go. Lifestyles is on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks to all who helped to make this show possible, including Sharina Wad, David Fleming, Sean Houlihan, and executive producer Rick Dulock. Our theme music is provided by Ethan Bortnick. Join me next week at the same time for Lifestyles with me, Lillian Vasquez. Bye for now.